Chris Garlock here. We're taking a few weeks off to catch up with family now that we're able to travel. So this week's show is one from the Labor History Today archives. Originally posted June 10th, 2018, this show featured labor historians Joe McCartan and Julie Green, along with Ben Blake at the George Mini Labor Archives. They discuss Eugene Debs, railroad union leader and socialist. Plus, Labor History Today producer Patrick Dixon interviews Mark Dudzik on the founding of the Labor Party in the U.S. And this week's Labor History Object of the Week is an AFL-CIO letter boycotting Nazi Germany. Here's the show. Come on, let's go. Uh, welcome to the United States, land of the thief, home of the slave. Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and proud. Let's do the real. Come on now. Smoke and mirrors, stripes and stars. Stone for the cross. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today for the week of June 10th. I'm your host, Chris Garlock. And on today's show, Joe McCartan, Ben Blake, and Julie Green discussed Eugene Victor Debs, railroad union leader and socialist. He founded the American Railway Union on June 13, 1893, and on June 16, 1918, he spoke out on the relationship between capitalism and war. Ten days later, he was arrested and eventually sentenced to ten years in jail. Plus, Patrick Dixon interviews Mark Dudzik on the founding of the Labor Party in the United States, and this week's Labor History Object of the Week is an AFL-CIO letter boycotting Nazi Germany, part of the exhibit for Liberty, Justice, and Equality Unions Making History in America at the George Meany Labor Archives at the University of Maryland College Park campus. This week's labor music is Uncle Sam Goddamn by Brother Ali. Enjoy the show. Obey me and why do they hate me? Who me? Only two generations away from the world's most despicable slavery trade. Pioneered so many ways to degrade a human being that it can't be changed to this day. Legacy so ingrained in the way that we think we no longer need change to be slaves. Lord, it's a shameful display. The overseers even got raped along the way. Cause the children can't escape from the pain and they born with the poisonous hatred in their veins. All right, so uh, so we've got a Debs double hitter this week, uh, June 13th, 1893, and then uh, June 16th, 1918, but they both involve one Eugene Victor Debs. So, um, Julie, you connected these, and uh, why don't you set us up? Yeah, so these two dates take us from early in Debs' career towards towards later towards the end of his life, actually, which is kind of an intriguing duo for us. So the founding of the American Railway Union, you know, those of us who love talking about the 1890s, one of the most important decades in all of American labor history, for sure, love talking about the ARU. Fascinating union, um, kind of a, a key experiment in industrial unionism, trying to bring um, most all railroad workers together in one union rather than separating them by craft as the more traditional, more conservative railroad brotherhoods were. Um, the ARU did exclude African Americans, however, so it's important to, to note that. It's not, a, not perfect on, on race and ethnicity. But it also organized um, or included 
the shop workers at the Pullman Company, the, mm -hmm. the workers much more of an immigrant and female workforce who built uh, the Pullman cars. Um, so it's an important experiment in industrial unionism at a moment when kind of the main drift of the labor movement is not focused on industrial unionism. The AFL is rising at this moment, very much organized around a, a sort of pure and simple craft union model. Um, the railroad brotherhoods, of course, are craft-based. So ARU was an important kind of beacon of hope and optimism in a lot of ways. And of course, the ARU then quickly gets um, enmeshed in the, the Pullman boycott. It has a first great success against the Great Northern Railroad, uh, huge success, and then soon after that, the Pullman workers asked the ARU to support their fight. They just confronted, a, I think, a 25% wage cut by Pullman. Uh, they're living under conditions, it's company town, very arbitrary management. They're a very oppressed and exploited group, and they come to the ARU kind of a flush with its recent victory in the Great Northern Strike and ask for help. Uh, Debs himself was ambivalent about it, but decided to, uh, had a lot of his rank and file wanting to support these workers, and so, so they did, and that's what led to the Pullman Strike or, or boycott. Uh, ultimately, it's something like 250,000 workers across the country, shuts down most of the railroad traffic um, east of Detroit and some parts of the west as well. Um, the troops are called in and an injunction, the strike is broken, and Debs ends up in jail for six months for violating the injunction. So, you know, one of those most riveting moments in American labor history. It's pretty dramatic. I mean, and, and you know, just uh, these these strikes. And it was another one of these ones where it was really seen as I mean, you're shutting down the railroads, which were the key transportation in the country at that point, right? So this was pretty serious stuff. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know it, the great irony of it too is that the the railroad employers they knew that this was a key showdown, right? And so one of the first things they do is attach United States mail to some mm -hmm. of the cars. So that the... So they attach the U.S. mail to the cars so that the um, workers will be in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Oh, how clever. So the mm -hmm. Sherman Act, of course, one of the great ironies in American history is the Sherman Act is passed in 1890 to prevent um, corporations from engaging in unfair practices, but for the next decades it will mostly be used to break labor union organizing rather than to keep corporations from organizing. And that's that was the basis of the injunction that broke the Pullman boycott and put Debs in jail. Well, not for the first or the last time, I think. Um, so, Joe, mm -hmm. maybe you can pick up with our second one in 1918, which is right. what I said was later in life and different issue, but not really. Well, good, good way of putting it, Chris. So in 1918, this week in 1918, Debs went to Canton, Ohio and gave a speech. The U.S. was in the middle of World War I then. Uh, the Socialist Party, which 
Stubbs had uh, been instrumental in forming after the Pullman strike. Uh, he became attracted to Marxism and uh, Marxian ideas and, and believed in the aftermath of Pullman that, that U.S. workers needed their own party, needed a party that was allied clearly with their interests and with, with the labor movement. Um, that the Socialist Party of the U.S. did not support the war uh, in Europe. Uh, there was a split within the party. Some pro-war socialists broke away and did support it. But Debs was among those who opposed the war. Um, because the party was opposed to the war, it suffered some repression during the war, just as the IWW did. The IWW was really decimated by that repression. Its leaders were arrested in 1917, most of them, and put on trial, um, in a mass trial. Um, the Socialist Party found its periodicals and other things banned from the mail because of its stance. Um, Debs continued to speak against the war, and in uh, Canton, he went there to, to specifically talk about the war and capitalism, uh, and to criticize um, the, the way in which the country was sending its workers uh, to the slaughter, as he uh, himself at that time saw it. And as he put it, uh, let me read a little clip uh, from his speech, if I could. Uh, this is one of the things he said in Canton to, to an audience uh, of mostly workers. They have always taught and trained you to believe it to be your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourselves slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, you, the people, have never had a voice in declaring war. And strange as it certainly appears, no war by any nation in any age has ever been declared by the people. And here let me emphasize the fact, and it cannot be repeated too often, that the working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war, and they alone make peace. Yours is not to reason why, yours but to do and die. That is their motto, and we object on the part of the awakening workers of this nation. Mm. Uh, stirring words, and at a time when to say something like that would run afoul of laws that had been recently passed. Um, the Espionage and Sedition Acts were passed during the war, and um, Debs was uh, brought up on charges of urging people to resist the draft, uh, in effect. Um, and for that reason, he was jailed. Uh, and so, uh, twice in his life, uh, both in 1894 after Pullman, uh, and here in Canton, he runs up against the state uh, and against the powers of the state to repress. Now, we, t we talk about the years um, of the 1890s through World War I. We, we often refer to them as the Progressive Era. Um, and, you know, sure enough, there were a number of things that happened in that period that were reform-oriented. The first efforts to um, ban child labor, to create minimum wages, at least for, minim for women workers. Um, 
the first moves toward things like uh, workers' compensation uh, laws and such things. There were some progressive things happening, but as Debs's life and career shows us, and as these two episodes show, that even in this uh, era in which there was a, a movement to try to reform some of the most egregious uh, things that workers faced, uh, there was also tremendous state repression uh, at crucial moments, and, and Debs himself uh, found himself in the crosshairs twice. Ben? Yeah, I think Debs is such a great figure in labor history as kind of that internationalist, you know, really believing in that principle of internationalism and kind of viewing World War One as kind of the clashes of nationalism and sort of ruling classes, ruling elites, fighting in their national interests, fighting over empire, and those kind of things that the working class has nothing to do, should have nothing to do with. That it's not, in, you know, he's arguing that it's not in the interest of the working class to side with the various countries, like happened in Europe where the Social Democratic Party sided with, pretty much sided with their various countries and kind of led their rank and file off to war. And Debs is saying, we want no part of that. We want to hold true to, you know, Marx's concept and the, the left's concept of internationalism. And uh, I think Debs has always been a hero of mine. Uh, Bending Cross, the book, uh, mm -hmm. is one of my favorite books. And there's a wonderful documentary clip when he's released from prison, I think it was Leavenworth, where there's mm -hmm. this long walkway out, and he keeps turning back to wave back to the prisoners, because the whole prison is vibrating. <laughs> Everyone is just banging and celebrating his release. And, and he had the famous quote, uh, I think is if I'm, I don't know if I'll get this right, but you know, as long as there's one person in jail, you know, uh, we're all, I, I'm, I'm not free. free. I'm not free. And they're famous. It's Mandela-like, if you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. And he had the campaign buttons where he's in prison garb, you know. Yeah. Because well, he, he ran for president yeah. in 1990. Yeah. Yeah. The most votes yeah. a socialist has ever gotten for president uh, he yeah. got while yeah. in prison. Back when a million votes was, a, you know, a lot of votes. <laughs> yeah, it was about 3.5%, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's an amazing thing. So, you know, he's sentenced for to 10 years in prison for wow. this. Wow. And for, you know, he appeals it. It goes to the Supreme Court, and um, the Oliver Wendell Holmes decides against him. Partly, I think the most important grounds for refusing it, for not overturning it, was that he had praised people who had been imprisoned mm. um, for their objection to mm. the that war. Was, that was the key thing? Was he pr yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So pretty incredible. So yeah, he goes to, it's actually at his sentencing hearing that he makes that statement. Mm -hmm. I said then and I say now that while there is a lower class, I am in it. Mm. And while there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. Powerful, powerful words. Mm. So yeah, he's in prison. He's ultimately, I think in 21, he's let out after having been in for a few years. He actually, on route to his home, he stops at the White House and is greeted by President Harding, which is kind of amazing to me. Yeah, I had no idea. Is it a case of mistaken identity, maybe? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that Debs. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thought it was somebody else. Yeah, very <laughs> you know, strange. I'm not sure about the um, circumstances of that, but I wouldn't be surprised that yeah, Debs was popular. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And why not uh, take a chance to rub it in that a Democrat <laughs> put him in jail? Yeah, I think that <laughs> so might have been part of it. Know. Woodrow Wilson always yeah. said that he would never free him, that he was a traitor, that he was speaking against the war when our boys were dying. And right. France, and so maybe it was. It was Harding who commuted his sentence to time served, um, but it wasn't a pardon, and so um, Debs remained disenfranchised for life as mm -hmm. a result of having been sent to prison. Such an irony. Yeah, yeah. And died a few years later, um, had heart troubles linked to his time in prison. So I, I wonder, just as we wrap up, I mean, you know, and like you, I'm a huge Debs fan. And I think it's for things like that that he was obviously such, you know, he was an organizer and did some, you know, it's amazing organizing feats, but he also seemed like a deeply, deeply principled person, you know, and, and it just, you know, that, that, that quote that you just read, Julie, is always, you know, to say, I am of a criminal class. I mean, it, it's so correct, but I, I would have a hard time saying that. Um, but I, I wonder what does Debs have to say to us today, you know, given where we are, or somebody like that? Well, he's an amazing uh, figure. His, his commitment to his political beliefs, like Ben was saying, his internationalism, mm -hmm. I think, is something to learn from. I mean, I think Debs is interesting partly because he's not without his weaknesses, mm -hmm. too. Right. He is incredibly powerful as an orator, and he had this charisma that would get, you know, almost a million people voting for him. But While he's in prison. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But he's complicated, too, because he didn't really like politics. Politics, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's a but political he leader office. who didn't like politics yeah. that yeah. much. And ran a number of times, yeah. right? I mean, he ran... Ran four yeah. times four for times. president. And he's so. a labor mm -hmm. leader who doesn't want to be a labor leader. Right. He yeah. says, you all, you have to figure it out yourself. He was not a good administrator. Yeah. Stuff. If you want a Moses, yeah. it's not me. Don't right. look to me. Go figure it out yourselves. Right. Um, and so he's complicated. But that's good, you know. I was going to say, is that's, that may be a feature, not a bug, right? I mean. Well, I think that's a really good point, yeah. You know, the Woodrow Wilson and Debs, I mean, they were both highly principled uh, people in a sense, but, you know, Wilson was so captive to um, this rigidity about his view and a, and a certainty of his sort of superiority. He doesn't compare that well over time with Debs. And I think Debs had a huge impact on Wilson, though Wilson, I'm sure, would always deny it. But those words from Debs, like, the people have never had a chance to declare war and peace. I mean, Wilson would, in the end, have to try to push for, as he called it, uh, open covenants openly arrived at in the post-war period. I mean, he was sensitive to the criticism of the undemocratic nature of diplomacy. And even Wilson ends up, I think, having to pay homage to Debs's ideas in a way. Hmm. That's interesting, comparing Debs to Wilson. I always, in my mind, think of the parallel between Debs and William Jennings Bryan, mm. another mm. guy who rises to yes. power partly because of his skills as an orator, mm -hmm. you know, runs for the presidency mm -hmm. three times, mm -hmm. and yet Kind of like Debs in some ways, I incredibly charismatic, but not 
as good at carrying through. Um, you know, not he, he as not a an politician. Yeah, not an organizer. As a, a even in the government, he's not known for having been an effective guy. But he, you know, people would really turn out to see him. My he, you know, I'm from Nebraska originally, and my, no. uh, my grandmother once said she heard him speak. Mm. She said he was the most handsome man I ever saw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So wow. he. Um, you know, he had his way, not just with the ladies, but, uh, you know, he had this charisma <laughs> that made people want to get up and move, but he didn't quite know where to move them to. The, the thing about yeah. the Canton speech w was, uh, was it was reminding me of it was a time, and speaking of, of, of Brian and, and Dabs and, or, and orators, that these were folks who, and maybe you guys know more about this, but I know they could speak for, you know, a couple hours. And this I don't mm -hmm. think there was any amplification at the time. And they're speaking, I, I think in Canton, the crowd was over a thousand people. So as an organizer myself, I mean, you got a thousand people. I, I can't imagine trying to have, it would, you know, nobody I know would try to talk to, a, you know, a couple hundred people, much less a thousand people, without, without a system, you know, without a, a you know, an amplification. So, t so to be able to do that, first of all, you have to be able to project, in, you know, somehow. Secondly, I don't think they were necessarily speaking from from prepared. Uh, no. they, they, they were right. So, so to be able to speak, you know, extemporaneously right. for an hour or two without, uh, I'm just it kind of yeah. blows my mind. Yeah, that was not a short speech. No, that was a long speech. Uh, and well, one thing about that time, you know, was that the great f sort of orators of the time, including Brian, they could, they had powerful voices and, and an ability to project. And um, one of the things of the time, I think, is that the great orator could entertain an audience and like keep, you know, bring them on an emotional journey and. Uh, in some ways, it, it was uh, even a form of entertainment, uh, though, you know, not light entertainment at all oh. when it comes to Debs. I mean, <laughs> but, but you know, the <laughs> thing about Debs is it's not just a million people voted for him. He was widely admired and loved by many others who never voted for him. Um, uh, and many listened to him and, and had great admiration for him. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing person. Yeah. yeah. Well, good good choice. Nice to have uh, a Debs double hitter. So I think we will uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, guys. This has been yeah. fun Great. as Thank always you. and look forward to having you back. Yeah. 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 Right. Welcome to the United States, land of the feet, home of the slave. The Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and power is gone. Welcome to the United States, land of the Hold on, give me one right here, hold on. You don't give money to the bums On the corner with a sign bleeding from their gums For this week's Labor History Object of the Week, I talked to curator Ben Blake about a letter from the AFL-CIO officially boycotting Nazi Germany during World War II on exhibit now in the show for Liberty, Justice, and Equality, Unions Making History in America, now up at the George Meany Labor Archives at the University of Maryland College Park campus. 
All right, so so this is interesting. Uh, it it's a letter. It's on American Federation of Labor letterhead. Um, obviously, an original because the the edges are all browned, uh, a little bit curling. Uh, and it says uh, to national unions, state federations of labor, city central bodies, and directly affiliated local unions, dear sirs and brothers, in my circular letters, uh, your attention is directed to the action of the San Francisco Convention of the American Federation of Labor in approving the chest for the liberation of workers in Europe. Ben, what is going on here? What, what is this a letter about? Well, this is a letter uh, coming out of the uh, 1935 convention of the AFL calling for a boycott of Nazi uh, Germany, uh, goods produced in Nazi Germany. Wow. So this is something that would have been sent out uh, to all of the, uh, the central labor councils and the state feds. That's right. This was a national effort to, to not only boycott Nazi goods, but also to... Uh, raise money for refugees and actually for organizing the underground within Nazi Germany. So it's fascinating because, you know, clearly this, you know, you've got it again behind glass here, but it is an original document. Uh, You've got it in some sort of protective sleeve even inside the case here. So you mean to say that you have, you know, I guess tens of thousands of of, of these sorts of documents uh, from the AFL archives? Yes, the total archives is about uh, 20,000 feet of documents, and we have organized and available for researchers about 4,000, and we hope to get the rest uh, available very soon, uh, and we're working very hard to do that. Uh, But there are basically 4,000 feet of documents, so each foot represents about 2,000 single pages. And then, so say for some reason I was researching, you know, uh, this particular um, issue, I mean, would I be able to actually look at these documents in the archives? And if so, I mean, you know, how do you handle them? Yes, absolutely. We're a public university, and so anyone can come in. Any member of the public, uh, union members, students can come in and view our material. Uh, you'll definitely want to contact us in advance so we can help you know, direct you to the guides. But we have a guide that describes over 65,000 folders of documents in the collection. And you can come in, and then you would view it here in our uh, Maryland reading room. Uh, We'd set up the boxes. Usually we set them up in advance. You can do this all online. And then you can come in, and you can take a look at the original documents. And what's the importance of actually having original documents? Well, I think this is the question of authenticity. Uh, You can look at the document, and then... Judge for yourself whether you think it's a, a actual real document, but uh, in most cases you can kind of get various hints by looking at it that it's a true and uh, accurate uh, historical document. Yeah, because this this one definitely, <laughs> like I said, it's got the it's actually got little you know not only the browning but little tears uh, in the in the edge, and it looks it looks like uh, you know it's funny because this of course now I think is a maybe a Times New Roman font, uh, but that actually was that that comes I think out of actual typewriter. This looks typewritten. Yeah, no question. And and most of the documents, 20th century, most of our documents are 20th century. Uh, most of them from 1955 on from the a merger of the AFL and CIO. Uh, but yes, that's one of the hints that you can use to uh, uh, verify the authenticity of the document. 
And then one other question, obviously, you must be involved uh, or engaged in, in digitizing uh, these uh, records. And, and so what's, what's happening with that? Uh, yes, we are. We have about 1,400 items uh, digitized and online in our digital collections. So if you go to University of Maryland, Google University of Maryland Digital Collections, you can search in there. Uh, that includes mostly photographs, but we do have some documents. And we have 23 documentary films that we were able to digitize in conjunction with the exhibit that focus on social justice issues. So those are all available online. Well, thanks again for sharing this with us, Ben. Great. Thank you, Chris. Next up, Patrick Dixon interviews Mark Dudzik, the national organizer and chairman of the United States Labor Party, as well as a longtime labor activist. Dudzik is the former president of Local 8-149 OCAW, a branch of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers International Union, and is now the national coordinator of the Labor Campaign for Single Payer. Okay, so welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for joining us today. Yes, great to be here. All right, so we're talking about the Labour Party today. Now, I understand that the Labour Party was formed in 1996, but let's go back a little bit earlier. At what point did you feel like the Democratic Party ceased to be the party that Labour needed? Well, you know, I was uh, a local union leader um, and an activist from the late 70s onward. And, you know, the, the 1980s really hit the labor movement like a freight train. Um, you know, it was a huge sea change in um, perception of labor's power and labor's role in the, the broader political sphere. Um, and, you know, it was really, you know, in retrospect, you know, the rise of neoliberalism and um, all of that, what that means for uh, uh, politics and conditions for the working class here and around the world. Um, so, uh, you know, as the 1980s developed, it was pretty clear that this whole sort of post-World War II consensus that labor was a partner um, at the table with, uh, with other social movements and forces uh, no longer existed. And it became increasingly clear that the Democratic Party um, was moving away from its um, support of some of the core issues that uh, motivated the labor movement um, and was moving much, much more towards neoliberalism. So, um, you know, we, I was active in some of the insurgencies in the Democratic Party in the 1980s, particularly the Jesse Jackson uh, challenges to the mainstream of the party. And, you know, me and many other people began to reach a conclusion that um, change was necessary. And then finally, we hit the 1990s. Uh, Bill Clinton got elected after 12 years of right-wing Republicans and immediately started to sell us out on all of the core issues that were important to us, labor law reform, health care reform, um, welfare, so-called reform, uh, denying you know, eliminating the right to basic sustenance. Uh, and then, you know, the, the the nail in the coffin was Clinton's open advocacy for NAFTA, the first free trade agreement that sort of opened the doors to uh, um, broad globalization and deindustrialization. And in the late 80s, there was a, a uh, reform slate that was elected to the national office in my union. Um, and... Uh, my good friend Tony Mazaki was part of that slate, 
that slate ran on part of their program was to say that the time has come to, to start talking to our members about whether we need a party of our own. And uh, once they took office in the late 80s, we began to survey our own members about their perceptions of politics. And we found that everywhere we went from... Uh, from the Northeast to, you know, the Louisiana bayous, a majority of our members had come to the conclusion that neither the Democrats nor the Republicans represented their interests and that it was time to talk about a, a, a party that represented working people's interests. So we took that idea and then we suggested uh, that other unions uh, do the same thing and start asking their members, which, you know, in our in the labor movement, that's sometimes seen as a radical idea to actually ask your members what they think about politics. But a number of unions around the country also began to do a similar survey and got very similar results almost everywhere we went, from nurses in California to paper workers in Maine. Um, majorities of members were fed up with both parties and wanted to explore the idea of a party of our own. Clearly, this is not simply in the manufacturing sector. Uh, no, it was it was pretty widespread. You know, we did had contacts in sort of the new organizing that was taking place in the 1990s. Um, I think some of the core elements came out of the manufacturing sector uh, in the 90s because they were both the hardest hit by neoliberalism at that point um, and. You know, had been under, you know, there had been these uh, whole series of just brutal strikes and lockouts and contract fights uh, in the uh, industrial sector that kind of pulled together sort of a militant um, and angry uh, group of unions that were, you know, saw themselves as fighting for survival and saw, saw the real connections between their day-to-day -day fights in the factories and... Uh, the need for an independent political party that represented workers' interests. Many modern uh, political party conventions are highly choreographed affairs and not much gets discussed or debated. Tell me about the 96th convention in Cleveland. How did you manage expectations for what the party could accomplish? Yeah, well, that, you know, this sort of became, developed its own momentum. It was a really exciting time, you know, 1996 was this sort of peak moment of um, people thinking that we were on the verge of building a uh, revitalized and uh, newly powerful labor movement. In 1995, uh, in the only contested election, we elected new leadership to the AFL-CIO, and there was a promise that uh, uh, we were going to develop these organizing strategies that were going to bring one million workers a year back into the labor movement uh, and, uh, you know, we we were riding that wave. So when we first started organizing this, uh, the June 1996 founding convention, um, we thought that it would be a fairly small meeting of, you know, the, uh, the core unions. I think there were at that point five national unions that had uh, endorsed the idea of uh, uh, trying to found a labor party. Um, and that, you know, we would use that as a beginning shot of a broader broader project to publicize the party, but it just developed all this momentum. So in the six months 
prior to the uh, founding convention, we hold this, held a series of uh, of hearings and meetings around the country to sort of begin to discuss um, the elements of what a working class political party should uh, should be taking up the key core issues uh, in a party program, how the party ought to be governed, um, um, what its participation in electoral politics ought to be. And so there was a whole series of meetings, discussions, and debates leading up to the uh, founding convention. And by the time we got to Cleveland in June of 96, there were 1,400 of us representing more than 2 million organized workers around the country, and I think about 500 local unions and uh, five or six national unions. Uh, and, you know, it was a really wide open convention. There was broad debate over all of the issues uh, and then a, a broad sense that we needed to come together and, and unify. And, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking to each other and coming up with a a program about what politics would really look like if it was conducted on, on behalf of the majority of Americans who work for a living. Now, in the years following that, you ran various campaigns, things like free education. Well, people seem to think that's a pretty good idea now. Uh, Single-payer health care, that's still popular. Um, what, what do you think were the, the, sort of the best accomplishments of the Labour Party in the years that came after 1996? Yeah, I, th I think, as you said, the best best accomplishments were, you know, beginning to frame these issues and, as as uh, my good friend Tony used to say, seizing the terms of debate. So if you look at, you know, the sort of the Bernie Sanders progressive platform of today, almost all of these elements came out of the work of the Labor Party in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, you know, free higher education was pretty much adopted wholesale from our our program on that uh, to make education free for all public institutions uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, our health care, single payer health care, which we call just health care. You know, I, I continue to work on that with the labor campaign for single payer, and you know, we are you know, forging a pathway to victory on that front. Um, uh, workers' rights was another, another central campaign that we worked on um, to try to define, um, you know, workers' rights as human rights rather than these weird uh, definitions that are rooted in the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Um, and then, you know, the right to a job and some of these other single-issue campaigns were really came together and helped to to pull the debate uh, back to what uh, interests would affect working-class Americans. What were some of the obstacles then that ultimately limited how much the Labour Party could accomplish? Well, you know that the 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 biggest question that we were not able to answer is how to move from this. Uh, dysfunctional relationship with the Democratic Party uh, into a fully a full-blown political party that could run its own candidates. We had vowed never to be a spoiler candidate, a spoiler party that ran candidates just for the sake of running candidates, that we wanted to run candidates in ways that built power for working people and moved our agenda. Um, but the uh, extracting 
the institutional labor movement from their instrumental relationships with uh, the Democratic Party is a really difficult and complex task because, uh, you know, they need those relationships on a day-to-day basis in order to do the basic um, work of representing their members. So, um, you know, we... The premise that we were building this party on was that we were in this moment of upsurge uh, in the working class movement um, and that, you know, a movement that was organizing a million workers a year and that was really moving forward on all fronts would also be able to make advances on the independent politics front. And, you know, that whole movement suffered a strategic defeat around the turn of the century. Um, You know, the appointment of Bush as president, changed national politics. There was a huge political attack on unions and working class interests. Um, the events of 9-11 and the rush to war um, also kind of changed a lot of the political dynamics and then re- a series of recessions and downturns, the destruction of many of the industrial unions that were the core of the Labor Party all created, uh, you know, a different... Uh, political situation that, uh, you know, led to our slow, slow demise, uh, and then sort of revival of ideas under different forms in the current day. Uh, just looking at more recent events, in 2016, Labour said that we wanted a candidate that, uh, that would stop the Trans-Pacific Partnership and it was against new trade agreements. Well, we got, we got one. Uh, <laughs> But uh, do, do the events of 2016 encourage you in the Sanders campaign in, in terms of the sort of potential to um, potential to reform the Democratic Party, or you know, do you take away from that that attempts to reform the party were ultimately crushed? Well, yeah, I, you know, look, this is a time of tremendous threat and tremendous opportunity. And, you know, the threat, and we've, we always said this in the Labor Party, that if we don't come up with a, uh, a progressive way to unite the working class around issues that benefit all working people, that these ugly um, ideas tinged with uh, racism and uh, uh, anti-immigrant and uh, anti-worker ideologies will begin to, to uh to come forward, and that's, you know, exactly how I see the the rise of Trumpism. You know, I mean, it's true that they oppose some of the uh, uh, trade issues uh, and other issues that we've always been really vocal on, but, uh, you know, they do so in a way that, you know, regenerates uh, all kinds of ugly uh, ideologies and uh, develops a, a new mode of authoritarianism that could really crush working class aspirations for decades if it was allowed to to become pervasive. But, you know, on the other side, the Bernie Sanders challenge to uh, the Democratic establishment was incredibly heartening, continues to play out today. Um, you know, I've been very active in a grouping called Labor for Our Revolution, which is... Um, a loose coalition of uh, national and some local and regional unions that are trying to um, push the uh, independent working class political program of the Sanders campaign um, and also uh, question 
the institutional labor movement about how it does its politics and how it endorses politicians and really challenge them to think outside of the box. I'm very hopeful about those prospects. Um, I know Senator Sanders is committed right now to um, a program that hopes that the Democratic Party will be able to reform to the point where it could embrace a program like his and move forward. I think ultimately I'm a little skeptical about those prospects. I think that there's um, huge countervailing forces within the Democratic Party that will try to co-opt that program and um, move it back into the neoliberal mainstream. But I think that that's really where the fight is taking place right now is, you know, around what a working class politics ought to look like and what instruments we need to create in order to advance that. We're coming to the end of the primary season now, and so many Democratic candidates for November are set. Do you, do you find uh, do you find encouragement in some of the candidates that have uh, that have made it onto the ballot, or ultimately some disappointment in the fact that Diane Feinstein, for example, who's not very popular among progressives, seems to be a shoe in to to be reelected in in California. Yeah, well, I think the jury's still out on, you know, what this the politics is going to look like come November of this year. Um, as I said, there's a lot of ferment. Uh, I think the Democratic establishment is trying to reassert control over these uh, insurgencies. Um, yeah, and, you know, in a lot of ways, um, you know, the electoral world is sort of the last place that recognizes the sort of sea changes that are taking place in people's perceptions. But I, I will tell you that I think by 2020, it will be impossible for a Democrat to get elected uh, to run for national office, to get nominated to run for national office, unless she or he claims to support things like Medicare for all and uh, the right to uh, uh, access to affordable higher education and some of these core issues. So I think that there has been a sort of an ideological change uh, in the electorate that um, is beginning to uh, to reflect itself in these different candidacies and these political debates happening around the country. I think, these, I think we'll be returning to these issues again uh, over the course of the year. Thanks for talking to me today. It's great to be here, Patrick. Welcome to the United States, land of the feet, home of the slave. The Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and power is gone. Welcome to the United States, land of the Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. Labor history sources include Today in Labor History from Union Communication Services, our music this week was Uncle Sam Goddamn by Brother Ali. We have a link to Brother Ali's great video on the Labor History Today podcast page. And as always, we hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Labor History Today. Please spread the word by liking us on your favorite podcast app. Also, if you'd like to contribute a Labor History item, just shoot us an email at laborhistorytoday at gmail.com and we'll send you details on how you can be part of the podcast. This has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next week.